of the 99 journalists killed globally in 2023, nearly 75% of them were journalists killed by Israel in Gaza. The occupation is like number one at something again. Egypt is currently constructing a buffer zone, concentration camp, cage to put Palestinians in. The majority of the Palestinian population is concentrated in Rafah on the premise that Rafah was a safe zone. Absolutely nowhere for Palestinians to go in Rafah. The reason they were in the street is because whenever there's heavy bombardment, they leave their houses because their biggest fear is to be trapped under the rubble alive. Massacres continue every single day. One of the targets of Israel's bombardment campaign was the mosque where my uncle prays every day since he's been displaced. Several sheltering families killed or injured. I saw pictures published by UNRWA on their social media accounts of northern Gaza. Every single building was destroyed. All of them. There's nothing left. There is a lot of discussion right now about how the next phase of the Gaza Nakba is going to play out. And for all of you who have been keeping up with the Palestine pod during this Nakba, you will know that we have since the beginning referred to this as a Nakba, not only because that's what Palestinians are experiencing, but that's also what the Israeli leaders are promising. Avi Dichter told us in November that Israel was rolling out the Gaza Nakba. What remains to be seen, however, is exactly how Israel is going to fully dispossess Palestinians in Gaza of their presence in Gaza and expel them out to another place. I have read reports this week that Egypt is currently working on constructing a buffer zone at a very rapid rate, which will essentially be akin to a concentration camp, a holding cell, a cage to put Palestinians in, in the event of a mass exodus from Gaza. We know right now that the majority of the Palestinian population is concentrated in Rafah. We also know that in parallel that Netanyahu has promised that there will be a heavy escalation in Rafah after concentrating Palestinians there for the last four months on the supposed premise that Rafah was a safe zone. Those are the earlier phases of the Nakba where Israel said, leave your houses, get out, everybody must go south, get out, evacuation order, go, move, move. And they did that so that they could destroy all of those houses and make it impossible for those Palestinians to return. That part has been completed. The destruction of the majority of the Palestinian homes in Gaza has now been completed. But the Palestinians, by and large, still remain in Gaza. There have been some that have managed to escape, but the numbers are minimal compared to the fact that the majority of the people still remain in Gaza and in this current moment concentrated in the southern part of Gaza. Although there still are thousands of Palestinians in the northern parts of Gaza, the majority of the population is now concentrated south. So the next question is, is well, how is Israel going to push all of those Palestinians out? What will it look like when you consider the promise of an escalation in Rafah and consider the fact also that there's absolutely nowhere for Palestinians to go in Rafah to be guaranteed safety. And you consider the fact that Egypt is now building this buffer zone. It seems very clear to me that what he's going to do is sometime in the next week or two weeks or near future, commit massive massacres in Rafah for the purpose of terrorizing the population, creating major chaos and pushing everybody as close as possible to the border with Egypt to create some sort of like buildup of, of people exactly at the border so that Egypt will then say, well, what are we going to do? We can't let them be slaughtered. Let's open the border. 
causing a massive spillover into this buffer zone, which is currently being created, only for then Egypt to close the door behind them and say, well, now you're here and you can't go back. Nobody's trying to stop this. Hello and welcome to episode 115 of the Palestine Pod, the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with Palestine from all over the world and bring you stories, commentary, and interviews with the aim of supporting the Palestinian struggle for decolonization, justice, and equal rights. I'm one of your hosts, Laura E. You may know me from Instagram as at Gaza Girl, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mikey B. What's up, y'all? Mikey B on TikTok, Michael Scherzer on Instagram, and you can call me Mikey Intifada if you are one of John. Kirby's relevant partners. <laughs> Before we get into today's episode, please like, comment, subscribe if you hang out with us on YouTube. If you're listening on a podcast app, subscribe and leave a review. As always, you can find our full episodes and sources on palestinepod.com. And if you want to get involved in the conversation, please reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com and give us a follow on Instagram at the Palestine Pod. Find us also on Patreon, where you get early access to the Palestine Pod episodes and additional podcasts. We're also hosting our monthly Zoom happy hours with our Patreon subscribers only, so really exciting stuff. Check us out on patreon.com slash palestinepod. My DMs are flooded with messages like this one from Mohammed Sakala. He's a, he's a pharmacist. He says, I'm originally from northern Gaza, but we migrated to the south with my family in Rafa. But the situation is difficult in Rafa. And we are on the street now, and we are dying a hundred times a day, I swear. There are 12 of us fleeing, all of us with my mother and father. We want to travel through the Rafa crossing, but there is a small amount of money we are missing. We have $65,000 of it, and the cost of all of our travel is $84,000. The Egyptian authorities charge each person $7,000. Now, he asked me to boost his link. Of course, I did. And then he asked me, hi, brother, how are you? And I was shocked, honestly, because it's like he's living a genocide and he's checking in on me. That's how much Palestinians teach life is that he asked me to amplify this fundraiser that will save his family's life and still has the compassion within him to check on me. And of course, I said, Alhamdulillah, brother, I'm doing okay. How are you? And he said, thank God we are fine, but there is random bombing. And it's like, there's nowhere that's safe. They're killing people in a concentration camp. They are committing genocide against people in a concentration camp, and there's nowhere to go. I saw pictures, drone footage that was published by UNRWA on their social media accounts of northern Gaza. Every single building was destroyed. All of them. There's nothing left in that particular image that I saw. And the image is an image of northern Gaza, long coastal parts of northern Gaza. And you see that it was a formerly built up city and area and society. And now it's just gray. And this is, of course, consistent with the reporting from a couple of months ago that said that Gaza is now a different color from space. You can actually see the physical differences from that far away. Massacres continue every single day. And in particular, on the night of February 12th, that Sunday to Monday, when Netanyahu tested the waters a little bit by heavily, heavily bombing Rafah for one night, although it was bombed every single day before then, and it continues to be bombed. But that particular night, 
he unleashed sort of preview of what the aggressive response in Rafah would be. On that particular night, my family that is displaced in Rafah, because I still have family that's up north, but the, the individuals who are displaced in Rafah spent the night in the street. The reason they were in the street is because whenever there's heavy bombardment, they leave their houses because their biggest fear is to be trapped under the rubble alive and to have to suffer for days knowing that nobody is coming for them because there simply are not the supplies necessary to be able to get people out of the rubble consistently and knowing that their fate would probably be to starve to death or to dehydrate to death under the rubble, which is a nightmare and their biggest fear. So they ran outside. They didn't know where to go. They were running around in circles. They didn't know what was safe. One of the targets of Israel's bombardment campaign that night was the mosque where my uncle prays every day since he's been displaced. That mosque had in it several sheltering families who were killed or injured when the mosque was hit by an Israeli airstrike. Thankfully, my uncle was not in the mosque at the time. My brother-in-law's sister is pregnant due on March 7th. She's almost done with her pregnancy. She spent the last four months of her pregnancy surviving a genocide. She has no idea where she's going to deliver. And honestly, if this escalation comes in the next week or two, and the actual moment of expulsion happens around that time, there's a big fear that she may end up delivering in an Egyptian concentration camp in the Sinai with no services, with no food, with no water, with nothing. We've seen images out of the attack on the Rafah on that night that are enough to chill your bones. In particular, the image of the young girl by the name of Sidra, who is actually a relative of the Palestinian ambassador to the UK, Hassam Zumlot. You guys may remember the image of Sidra, which shocked all of us. Her body hung by a wire, covered in ash, limp, and her legs were missing. They had been completely shredded off. And the story, of course, is horrifying on its own. But another layer of the tragedy is that in what other world could an ambassador's relative, a child, be murdered in, in such a brutal way. And I've heard almost no condemnation of it by any state. You can be 100% certain that if Sidra was an Israeli girl or an American girl, relative of an ambassador that hung by a wire while her legs were shredded off, that her story would have traveled the world and remained on headlines for months. The same, of course, could be said about Hind Rajab. The same, of course, could be said about all the Palestinian children whose stories contain mountains and mountains of trauma and pain, completely senseless, completely useless, completely avoidable, completely unnecessary. But they don't get the same attention because they're Palestinian. Yeah, especially when you contrast that with the story that came out recently of a Zionist diplomat. His son ran over a police officer on a motorcycle. He was arrested and then they tried to argue that he had diplomatic immunity. And for at least a little bit, the court accepted it until the State Department got involved because it caused such a media frenzy that they were like, oh, no, actually, diplomatic immunity wouldn't apply to this child who ran over a police officer. That was in the U.S.? Florida. Whoa. Yeah. Like, he would have gotten off with diplomatic immunity if the Internet didn't make us think about it. That's literally not how diplomatic immunity works. It doesn't apply of to your- Of course not. <laughs> like, 
like, what? You can't just run over a police officer as the child of a diplomat and be like, you know, we'll be all right. But that's literally what their argument was. Their argument was that he's related to a diplomat and therefore he could basically do whatever the fuck he wants. And for at least a little bit, the court in his municipality accepted that. I want to talk also about 11-year-old Darin Elbeya and her five-year-old brother Kinan. New York Times did a piece on them. The piece is really touching and moving, even though the New York Times refuses to name the, the murderer in this case of her family. They refuse to point out that the airstrike that killed her family was an Israeli airstrike. Leaving that glaring omission aside, the piece is actually incredibly touching. Darin and her brother are the sole survivors of an Israeli airstrike that hit their home and killed all the rest of their family members. 47 members of her family were killed on October 22nd, 2023. She's now receiving medical treatment outside of Gaza, and she recalls the instance when she was told that everybody in her family was killed, save for her and her brother. She said, I said, you're liars. You're lying to me. They weren't killed. They're alive. She recalls how she was in a coma for 15 days and that Kinan and her were rescued from the rubble. She asked a question. I would like to understand why they do this to us because people can't live without their parents. It's the first time my mom and my dad haven't been by my side. Why aren't we like the other children? She asked the question, why aren't we like the other children? And yesterday I shared a post of another genocidal discussion taking place in Israeli media in broad daylight for the world to see, where the argument that was being made was essentially that any Palestinian over the age of five is guilty and a target. And the discussion that was taking place on this program was to say, yeah, but the ones who are zero to four years old, we should still provide them humanitarian aid. I was surprised to see that, honestly. You know, I thought they would have been like, Palestinians are terrorists from conception. Right, but, but that is like a, a common position, right, in Zionist society. That's actually called the compassionate position in Zionist society. Exactly. Exactly. Like, let's be clear. This is a former Mossad official. So this is somebody, again, in, who has held high positions in government, who undoubtedly continues to have an influence over the way that things are run. He said that Palestinians in Gaza over the age of four are, quote, involved and deserve to face Israel's collective punishment policy of withholding food and humanitarian aid. He says that Palestinians age five and above deserve to be starved. And Secretary Blinken said, I see nothing wrong. He said, we will be investigating with our partners who themselves are admitting starvation is the tactic. Blinken is like, we're raising it with relevant partners. We are discussing the matter. It's like, are you discussing specific plans to withhold food? Are you discussing how to blow up water pipelines? What exactly are you discussing when you're raising this with relevant partners, unless you mean like R-A-Z and also like, what are your relevant partners? Who exactly is that? The people cutting off water, the people cutting off food, the people cutting off medical supplies? Is it the people who are blockading aid? Are those your relevant partners? Or is it like the police who are allowing them to do that? Or is it like the government who is instructing them to do that? Who exactly are the relevant partners? Well, actually, that's a very good question. And we can start to understand this a little bit more by looking at exactly what the U.S. said with respect to the delivery of humanitarian aid. So on February 15th, the Times of Israel reported that the U.S. reissued a plea for Israel to allow massive American shipment of flour in 
to Gaza precisely because it's been banned and prevented from entering Gaza by the genocidal regime that's intent on starving the five-year-old. So basically, a U.S. State Department official was asked, and he said, quote, I wish I could tell you that this flower is moving in, but I can't do that right now. All I can tell you is that it's absolutely critical as a staple for the Palestinian people, and we're going to keep working with our Israeli counterparts to see if we can get that port open to that flower. That's what John Kirby, the White House National Security Council spokesperson, said. Then he said, quote, They committed to allowing it in. We want to make sure that happens. We're mindful of the comments made by members of the cabinet about flower in the Ashdod port, and we are working it very hard. So basically admitting that they know that Israel is trying to starve Palestinians. But then they also are saying at the same time, like there's this double speak of, no, 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 but they agreed to allow it in. Well, if they just agreed to allow it in to you, but at the same time are telling everyone we're not letting it in, and it's definitely going to be banned, and it's necessary to starve five-year-olds and up. What are we doing here? What is this? John Kirby is like, I actually want to nominate Zionists for a Nobel Peace Prize because they wait until the age of five to kill Palestinians. You know, that's funny, but that's also very likely. I am not joking. (laughs) Okay. I am at this point predicting the future, right? There is literally nowhere for satire to go anymore. Yeah. I saw somebody say something like, I pity the onion because there's nowhere for them to go. Well, they just have to rebrand as truth, right? Right. They they have to rebrand as fortune tellers, actually. <laughs> they just have to be like, well, we just realized we're actually telling the most truth out of everybody else. So we can no longer be satire. We just have to switch categories. It's not satire. It's clairvoyancy. Same time, South Africa filed an emergency petition before the ICJ requesting the ICJ to implement additional measures and expressing its extreme concern over an escalation in the Rafah, noting that that would be a violation of the court's provisional measures that were ordered on January 26th, obviously. You may remember that Israel is supposed to report back to the court by February 26th on its compliance with the provisional measures, and South Africa will have an opportunity to comment. Can you imagine what that report will look like? Yeah. After they've committed Super Bowl massacre after Super Bowl massacre, after they've continued to concentrate, their still going to walk their dumb asses in front of the International Court of Justice and say, we've been in complete compliance. Yeah, 100%. After they've continued to make genocidal statements without restriction in their media, after they have continued to do absolutely nothing about the hundreds of Israeli settlers that are blocking the entrance of humanitarian aid at various crossings, in total violation of the court's order. And by the way, like if you look at those photos, these settlers that are sleeping at these crossings to make sure that there's roundabout, like 24 hour blockage of humanitarian aid, they all have the same tense, which begs the question, like, is this a government op? Like, is are they subsidized? Who are they being sponsored by? This is clearly something which is being organized at a much higher level. They are literally camped out like a supreme drop. It's insane, dude. You have Palestinians who are displaced from their homes because of airstrikes by the Israeli government on one side of the apartheid wall, right? In tents that are being blown apart. And then on the other side, you have Zionist settlers who are camped out in these like high grade weather resistant tents 
Y'all are doing this for fun, camping for the express purpose of being there to block aid during a genocide. Michael, that point that they're doing this for fun clicked for me in a way that it hasn't before, right before we got on this call. Mindfulness people over there, all their crystal healers, they're like, yeah, the best way to like reset your chakra is to just spend a little time outside camping and then blocking aid trucks to Gaza. They literally are dancing. I don't know if you saw the video of them dancing. I've, I don't know who listens to music like that, but it's very dark and there's clearly something, you know, their top charts right now has at least two songs that I know of that call explicitly for the genocide of Palestinian people. They talk about signing the bombs before they drop. These are the artists. These are the artists, the people who are supposed to be counter culture to the government narrative. These are the people who are uplifted in their artists circle it's genocide thinkers just like their government, just like the settlers that exist at the lowest level all the way to the top. Yeah. And look, I saw this video, another TikTok video posted, made its way onto social media in, in February, mid-February of them dressed as, you know, they're in their soldier gear and they are filming this funny clip about pretending to show a Palestinian home as if it were a real estate listing. And one of the soldiers is pretending to be interested in it. And the other soldier is pretending to show it. And I just sat there thinking like, the owners of these houses are displaced. They're starving to death. They're cold. They're literally going to die of heartache or bombs dropped by this genocidal army. And these soldiers are inside these homes playing, cosplaying, playing dress up. Like it's this notion that our Nakba is their entertainment. That is how they entertain themselves. And this is not new, right? Like this whole notion of the, the Siderot cinema that from years ago, this whole notion of the 72 virgins telegram, which was showing the killing and the brutality and the destruction for the purpose of entertaining people. And people were commenting on it like, wow, great shot, great video. Oh, listen to the bones crunch. Like these are actual things that were said in this telegram. And then it was confirmed that the telegram was actually an official operation of the Israeli occupation forces. They're the ones that set it up. They're the ones that published all the images, they published all the videos, and they were responsible for cultivating this genocidal like fury inside the, 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 the people who are consuming this as content, as entertainment, right? And it's this notion that like they obviously are never going to be able to accomplish their stated military purpose, you know, this fake agenda of destroying all Hamas and also rescuing their hostages through bombardment and starvation. Because what do you know? Like if you starve Ga Palestinians in Gaza, the hostages too won't have food. And if you bomb Palestinians in Gaza, you're going to kill your own hostages, which has already happened. So instead of actually offering a solution where they try to end this and they actually engage in diplomacy to get their hostages back, because that's the only thing that has worked to release 136 hostages, they've killed more hostages than they've actually managed to rescue save for diplomacy, right? Instead, what they offer the Israeli public is genocide as a form of entertainment. They say, well, we can't get you back the hostages through bombardment starvation, but we can get you this incredible content of Palestinians being crushed to death and Gaza being turned into a city of tents. The people behind the 72 Virgins telegram are actually John Kirby's relevant partners. 
Yeah, like that's those are the guys. Yeah. When John Kirby's like, we'll raise it with the re- relevant partners, what he means is he's clicking heart on one of those images. He's clicking laughy face on one of those images. I want to share something from Frankie Boyle who posted. You you like him, right? Yeah. Remember when we tried to book him for the podcast and he wasn't available? And then you responded thinking that he was the professor, Francis Boyle, and not the comedian. <laughs> did I say that to him? You did. He was he was like, I yeah, it was maybe his manager or something. And he was manager was like, he won't be available. He's like speaking on tour, whatever. And uh you were like, Wow, we we appreciate the professor's work. And uh we did not get a response, surprisingly. Which one? Uh, both of them, actually. They're pretty impressive, both of them. But I was hoping comedian Frankie Boyle. <laughs> Hilarious interlude. And Mr. Boyle, if you listen to the pod, we would love to have you still. Yeah, right. So he posted, I can't help feeling that what's happening in Gaza is the beginning of the end for all of us. If we can have a genocide live stream during the Super Bowl and say nothing, there's no challenge in the coming years that we won't fail. Yes, this genocide has been brought to you by Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. Yeah. He also said, I think for a lot of British commentators, large-scale civilian deaths are just an unfortunate but necessary part of the international order. And anyone calling out a genocide is seen as a little emotional, a little rude. Isn't that so true? That is so true. And I want to read something that came across my timeline that spoke to me from the page black liturgies no more apologies for a bleeding heart when the opposite is no heart at all danger of losing our humanity must be met with more humanity that's tony morrison and then protect the part of you that still winces at pain refuse to become too familiar with tragedy our souls were made to stir cole arthur riley but this grief for all its awful weight insists that he matters Jasmine Ward. I want to talk also about the siege and attack of Nasser Hospital and Khan Yunus, which has been taking place day after day, leading to some images that we saw of the various departments in Nasser Hospital actually being bombed. And um, one of the doctors there was able to film from within the department and you could just not even see because of the amount of just ash and smoke and and dust in the air. And people were screaming and people were injured and people were killed. And of course, Nasser continues to be a hospital where people are receiving treatment, whether that be treatment in the ordinary you know, course of, of, of just needing medical treatment for daily issues or a treatment in relation to being injured from airstrikes carry it out by Israel. And it continues to also be a space for families to shelter after having been forcibly displaced by Israel. None of that, of course, was taken into account before Israel decided to bomb the hospital. They had been t- calling on people to evacuate the hospital, right? But of course, evacuate to where? And anytime anyone tried to exit the hospital, they would be sniped. So we saw many videos of individuals being sniped outside of Nasser Hospital. We saw the famous video of an individual who had been sniped, a young Palestinian youth who had been sniped and was injured and bleeding out, be rescued by a Palestinian female doctor who ran across the road and exposed herself to being killed by an Israeli sniper to go retrieve him and help him get into the hospital so he could be treated. And it was a very powerful video and shows you the Palestinian woman in this context, how, you know, for all the West says about feminism, couldn't muster a single word to support this woman who was like 
a shining example of a hero in that moment, of a, of, of a feminist in that moment, of a leader in that moment, of an example in that moment, right? But the West had no words for her. Her story wasn't picked up anywhere, just, you know, disappeared completely. If you're not following Palestinian journalists, you wouldn't have even known that it happened. The West is like, we need to save Palestinian women. And then you show them that video and they're like, oh, no, not her. My bad. And some commentator pointed out that the reason the West is not interested is because the uh, oppression she faces is not from her headscarf, right? The oppression she faces is at the hands of a settler colonial apartheid regime, which is intent on committing a genocide against her and stealing her land. And so therefore, they're suddenly not interested in, in rescuing her. But if she had a bone to pick with the scarf she wears on her head, boy, like they would be there and they would have a whole conference about it. So a lot of the doctors and people were eventually forcibly expelled from Nasser Hospital. Dr. Mohammed Harara, who I've been doing lives with, who was first besieged in Al-Shifa Hospital and survived the besiegement of Al-Shifa Hospital by the Israeli occupation forces and was forced to drink saline solution for six days in order to survive before being expelled down into the south, was also expelled from Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunis in the last couple of days during the mass expulsion and now is in Rafah with nothing. He has no belongings. He's with the journalist Mohammed Al-Hilo, who I also do my lives with, and the other journalist, Mohammed Salama, who was injured in the attacks on Nasser Hospital and eventually made it down south as well. So basically, now these people have been forcibly displaced yet again. They have no belongings. They're sleeping out in the street. Mohammed Harara is one of the best doctors right now in Gaza, doing absolutely incredible, exquisite reconstruction work on people whose faces are getting shredded by Israeli weapons. And that doesn't even, it's not even the reason why he needs to have a place to stay, but it's just to show you that everybody is a target and everybody's lives are being destroyed, right? We know that that group of doctors and journalists was just targeted with an airstrike as of basically a few minutes before filming this podcast. They crossed from a checkpoint and then they were directly targeted after the checkpoint. Okay. And so it's like they know exactly who they are because they have just identified them by stopping their mobility at a checkpoint. And then that information gets sent back to HQ and they send an airstrike immediately because they know who they're targeting and it's doctors and journalists. I wonder if John Kirby has anything to raise with relevant partners. Also, I saw that video of this guy who I don't know who he is, but he gave basically a Hitler like speech where he was like, what kind of Jews ask for permission? We take what we want, essentially, right? That type of beat. Oh, that guy who said that the that the new Jew will decapitate his enemy, that guy? Yeah, that guy. His name is Ofer Rosenbaum, and he is the founder of the Civilian Front Organization, which doesn't sound as neutral as it suggests. It really stretches the definition of civilian. If you are up on stage talking about decapitating people. Right. That is not civilian activity. No, no, no. There's, yeah, no. They'll be like, we can decapitate people. We're civilians. Anybody who's over the age of four in Gaza is a terrorist. I feel like we're not even using word definitions anymore. If you can talk, if you can stand on stage and basically like give a speech that would rival Goebbels and you are a civilian, but a child who has just turned five in Gaza and has already lived through two bombardments. At least. Is a town. So, yeah. Brazil's president said that Israel 
kills women and children under the pretext of fighting Hamas. Thank you, Brazil's president, for seeing what we see very clearly. The Committee to Protect Journalists says that of the 99 journalists killed globally in 2023, nearly 75% of them were journalists killed by Israel in Gaza. And that's actually a statistic the occupation is proud of. Yeah. The occupation is like, look at us, number one at something again. Last week it was killing UN employees. This week, most journalists targeted. They're in their internal meetings, yeah. right? John Kirby's on a conference call. <laughs> oh, so true. But okay, can we just talk about how the United States Senate just approved a bill committing $14 billion to support Israel's genocide this week? And can we talk about how it would take $20 billion to cure homelessness in the United States if we just take one year of aid away and the bill that they're about to pass, that that is actually enough? It is sufficient to cure homelessness in the United States? Yeah, I just... I don't get it. I, you know, I, I continue to be sort of just like dumbfounded by the U.S., but I keep remembering your words that the U.S. is going to support Israel until the day it collapses. Do you remember when Nancy Pelosi was like showing us her ice cream during the pandemic? If the electricity went out in her office, she'd be like, we've got to get the ice cream over to the occupation. Like they'll send the very last bit of resources that they have to support the occupation's position. They're probably sending tents right now so that settlers can set up and blockade. They are so committed to the oppression of Palestinians and the upkeep of the occupation that it's like they'll spare no expense. They will literally starve people here in the U.S. for the express purpose of starving people in Palestine. Look, I want to leave people with some uh, some good news about the countries that have stopped supplying arms to Israel, because I think it's important to highlight that even though the response to this genocide is not sufficient and has so far not yet compelled Israel to stop, that this is the type of action that we need to see more of, okay? So we should acknowledge it and encourage many more countries to, with urgency, apply these types of sanctions against Israel. So in the Netherlands, a court gave the government one week to block all exports of parts for the F-35 fighter jet, which Israel is using to bomb Gaza. The ruling was a result of a lawsuit filed by the human rights organization Oxfam in the Netherlands, and they won their lawsuit. Folks, that's been another episode of the Palestine Pod. Thank you all so much for listening. Check out our full episodes and sources, www.palestinepod.com. Send us an email at palestinepod at gmail.com. And follow us on Instagram at thepalestinepod. Please support us on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash palestinepod. We so appreciate your support and we appreciate you listening. That's been another episode of the pod. Thank you all so much. Have as good a day as you can. We can start telling people to join the Patreon. The show wouldn't be possible without a Patreon. You got to get on our Patreon. Support us on Patreon. You can, you know, because like I've been watching all these other podcasts and they just keep plugging Patreon like all the time. Yeah, I'm going to clip what you just did right now. <laughs> okay. <laughs>